From the hidden mysteries of prehistory to the loud and out there present, the concept of magic has fascinated, enchanted, and bewitched our minds, bodies, and souls. Join me with your favorite blend of caffeinated ambrosia as I discuss the historical and cultural significance of magic with a smattering of pop culture. I'm your host, J.R. L'Esperance, and this is Coffee and Conjure. Greetings, and welcome to episode four, Egyptian Magic. In this episode, I will blaze through thousands of years of Egyptian history, not doing it any justice by any means, I promise you, but hopefully giving you a broad overview, as I always seek to do. After that, we get to the magic, and boy does Egypt have a legacy of magical practices. On to what I'm drinking. Because Egypt is yet another place where beer was greatly consumed, I'm cheating a little bit and drinking another of the Founders Breakfast Stout. Um, I've actually spilled it right before I was going to start recording, so we're already off to a great start. Anyway, as always, let me know via email or social media what you're drinking as you listen. Before I begin, I would like to thank a listener for emailing me. I jokingly asked in my last episode, what is the capital of Assyria? Just as a nod to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But I suppose I was kind of also asking seriously, considering that it was relevant to what we were talking about. So thank you to Catherine for emailing me her answer of Nineveh. So honestly, this is a bit of a trick question because there were several capitals of Assyria because there were a couple of different Assyrias. So Nineveh is one, as is Assur. Regardless, I appreciate the write-in, Catherine. Okay, let's dive in. If you were like me, you had a fascination with ancient Egypt, sometime in elementary school. For me, here in Virginia, it was third grade. I loved reading about mummies, reading the horrible histories book about Egypt, and watching TV shows that involved Egypt. As I got a little older, I fell in love with the Brendan Fraser classic, The Mummy, and could watch it over and over and probably recite the entire movie without even having to think. <laughs> As I mentioned in my introduction episode, when I was younger, my mom took me to the Chrysler Museum of Art, where they have an Egypt exhibit. But I actually refused to go in because I saw the sarcophagus they had on display, and I just said, no way, because I was terrified of being cursed. I had clearly read way too much about King Tut's tomb at that point. And yeah, as I said, n not taking the risk. 
If there is one River Valley civilization the average person could name, it would most likely be Egypt. It's been featured in movies, books, and television shows for as long as imaginable. People have been fascinated with the culture and history of ancient Egypt since even the Roman period, and Egypt has become a hub of archaeological digs. I was fortunate enough to travel to England when I was a junior in high school. It was a pseudo-joint Latin class trip with a neighboring school, and we took a tour of the highlights of Roman Britain. One of the stops we made in London was, of course, the British Museum. The British Museum has an extensive collection of Egyptian artifacts that, as anyone might tell you, came into their ownership under dubious circumstances, and that's putting it nicely. Regardless, they've curated an amazing collection that you can even view online. So I got to see some mummies and figurines and stuff like that, so it was pretty cool. Egypt has such a rich history, and again, an entire podcast could be dedicated to just ancient history. But for the purposes here, let's start with an overview. Remember, I always welcome questions via email or any of the podcast socials if there's anything in particular you would like me to expand on. So I'm going to skip the prehistory parts of Egypt for now, but know there are studies into this topic. And in fact, in the fall, as I start my second year of my master's degree, I'm actually going to be taking a prehistory of Egypt class. So I'll have to keep you posted on that. So instead, we're going to start with the early dynastic period, sometimes called the archaic period. This is the beginning of Egypt, emerging and consolidating into a recognizable state. This period lasted from about 3100 to 2686 BCE, and here we see the first of 31 dynasties of Egyptian royalty. Prior to this time, Egypt was divided into Lower and Upper Egypt. Get ready for a little bit of confusion. Lower Egypt is actually the geographic northern half of Egypt, and Upper Egypt is the geographic southern part of Egypt, and kind of down into modern Sudan. Yes, I know. Confusing. But my best guess is it's because the Nile River. The life-giving force in this otherwise desert country. Guess what it does? It flows south to north. Before I continue, let me say just a little something about the Nile River. The earliest humans that lived on its banks realized how important the river was to their way of life. They quickly learned its temperament, including the yearly flooding. In fact, they based their calendar on the flooding of the Nile and their growing season, their farming. Egyptians relied, and still do to some extent, on the flooding of the Nile. What is so important about this is that the water rises... Of course, that's kind of what flooding is. But when it does, it brings up these really rich soils. Fertile alluvial soils. And as the water spreads out, it spreads those soils. 
which allows for the Egyptians to grow their crops. If the Nile didn't flood, or didn't flood as much, or flooded too much, then the outcome of their crop was uncertain. I cannot stress enough how essential this river was, and again, to some extent, still is to the people of Egypt. So the early dynastic period. This is the time in which much of Egyptian culture begins to take shape, including religion and burial customs and kingship and so on. The unification of the Egyptian state probably came about through a series of military engagements. A great archaeological find about this topic is the palette of King Narmer. It is one of the earliest sources for hieroglyphic inscriptions and depicts King Narmer himself wearing the crown of Upper Egypt, holding a mace aloft. It's interesting because on the back side of this stone tablet, it's the same King Narmer wearing the crown of Lower Egypt. Both of these crowns will eventually be combined into one to signify and symbolize unification to become the pharaoh's crown of Egypt. The palette also depicts scenes of conflict, which is the source of the belief that the unification happened by military conquest. There's much debate around this artifact, but it is certainly a very cool find. So Narmer is considered the first pharaoh of Egypt to some, and the first dynasty that he founded would consist of around 10 more pharaohs. As with many topics in history, naming Narmer as the first pharaoh is hotly debated within the Egyptology community. Some say it was someone else named Menes. Some say Menes was Narmer. Some say Narmer was a mythical mishmash of a few of the very first rulers. Of course, we'll never know for certain, as the scholarship on the early dynastic period can be pretty scant. Any archaeologist might tell you that the second dynasty is one of the most obscure, and yet the first dynasty might be even more obscure. So just lots of shrouded mystery here. Instead of trying to get a solid chronology of this period, archaeologists have focused on the culture of the Archaic period. Though the names of pharaohs are tenuous at best, we do know enough to say that the government established was as connected to the environment of Egypt that it remained virtually unchanged throughout its entire history. So, again... The government that came around in came around in this period was actually pretty well established that the form of government didn't really change too much. And that's saying a lot. At the top of this government, you have the pharaoh, who is not only the king, but he was also a living god. So oftentimes the pharaoh is considered a god king. So the pharaoh, as a living god, also took charge of the religion of the state and was responsible for keeping ma'at, which was order, instead of chaos. The system also took on a somewhat bureaucratic one to an extent, with trusted officials running things like the treasury and 
even local regional governments. However, the king was always the absolute monarch, the one with the final say. Many of my students are often shocked to know that early civilizations did not necessarily develop in complete isolation from the world. Even from the earliest period of Egypt's history, they were engaging in long-distance trade, like places in Mesopotamia and the Levant, um, particularly modern-day Palestine. Some of the goods they traded were copper, olive oil, and stones, precious stones like lapis lazuli. In return, there is evidence of pottery in the area of Israel, suggesting that there might have been an Egyptian pottery industry. Out of the early dynastic period comes the era called the Old Kingdom, which lasted from about 2686 BCE to 2125 BCE. This is often considered to be the age of the pyramid, because most of the pyramids of Egypt were built during this period. The third dynasty of kings saw the first types of tombs, called mastabas. Um, these were mostly for kings and nobility. Um, so a mastaba is kind of like a mausoleum. So if you just picture a mausoleum, but also think about the mausoleum with underground components, and you've got a mastaba. The first pharaoh of this period is, and I should have probably said that there's going to be some Egyptian words in here and I may butcher them and I apologize in advance, but anyway, the first pharaoh of this period is Netjeriket, renamed Djoser. His is the tomb slash pyramid that kind of looks like steps. Um, in fact, it is often referred to as the step pyramid of Djoser. Want to know who foresaw the building of this structure? Why, Djoser's trusted vizier, of course! His name? Emotep. Fans of the mummy, you might be delighted to know that not only was Emotep a vizier or an advisor to the pharaoh, but he was also a high priest at the religious complex of Heliopolis. So, not too far off from his character in the mummy. It is in the fourth dynasty that we see the construction of pyramids in northern parts of Egypt. Um, the best thing about this period is we get the pyramid texts, which are really just writings on walls of tombs that detail religious rituals and, you know, kind of reveal some of the culture of Egypt, specifically the Book of the Dead and other writings on mortuary rituals, but more on that later. The evolution of the pyramid reached a pinnacle in the building of the Great Pyramid at Giza. Remember when I mentioned the Hanging Gardens of Babylon in the previous episode? Well, the Great Pyramid of Giza is another of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and the only one intact that you can actually visit today. The Pharaoh Khufu is entombed at the largest pyramid, so the Great Pyramid, and all the smaller pyramids nearby are the tombs of Khafre and Menkaure. Another of the most recognizable structures in the pyramid complex at Giza is the Great Sphinx. The one, you know, missing a nose. It was most likely built by Khafre, the son of Khufu, 
The other smaller pyramids nearby are tombs of queens, which is good to know that the ladies get a fancy pyramid grave too. After the Old Kingdom, Egypt transitioned into the First Intermediate Period, which lasted from 2160 to 2055 BCE. When you hear Intermediate Period or something of that ilk, you generally get a negative connotation. For Egypt, some would say there was social breakdown, economic disruptions, governmental chaos, environmental issues like the Nile being too low, and so on. Historians argue, as we are wont to do, <laughs> that there is no proof for most of these inferences. Archaeologists say there is no evidence of low waters on the Nile during this period, and while there may have seemed to be some sort of economic distress, some would say the wealth of the country was just simply distributed differently. There's one thing for certain, though, that archaeologists and historians can agree on, is that there was some sort of fragmentation of the state. So Upper and Lower Egypt kind of fell apart with local governments becoming more dominant. Unfortunately, we can't know a lot about the first intermediate period because there aren't a lot of documents or tomb inscriptions. Despite this, there are records of dynasties nine through 11 ruling over Egypt. Remember I said there were 31? So we've got a ways to go. After the first intermediate period came the Middle Kingdom spanning the years 2055 to 1650 BCE. This is generally marked by the pharaoh Mentuhotep II of the 11th dynasty reuniting the country into its former glory. Mentuhotep II's reign was seen as a somewhat prosperous one, and he contributed greatly to the temple landscape of Egypt. So in other words, he built a lot of temples. The 12th dynasty pharaohs mark the height of the Middle Kingdom period. There were eight pharaohs, all named either Amenemhat or Senesret, until the last one, Sobek-Neferu, who may have actually been the first ever female pharaoh. Guess what came after the Middle Kingdom? Another intermediate period aptly named the Second Intermediate Period, which lasted from about 1650 BCE to 1550 BCE. This is another period of uncertainty, maybe a bit of upheaval. Perhaps the most interesting aspect is the pharaohs of the 15th dynasty who were actually Hyksos, perhaps the first foreign rulers of Egypt. The Hyksos invaded Egypt and assimilated into Egyptian culture, but retained much of their own. They are believed to be a Western Semitic culture from somewhere in the Levant area, which again is made up of modern-day Israel, Palestine, Syria, and so on, just in that area. The Hyksos may have introduced, but we don't know for certain, a few new pieces of technology to Egypt, including the horse and chariot, sickle swords, which are pretty cool looking actually, and composite bows. 
But again, this is a much debated topic. Perhaps the most famous and well-known period, the New Kingdom succeeded the Second Intermediate Period. It is also often called the Golden Age of Ancient Egypt, lasting from 1550 to 1069 BCE. During the New Kingdom, you hear names that you recognize the most as far as pharaohs go. There is Hatshepsut, Amenhotep IV, self-styled as Akhenaten, and then his son Tutankhamun. You also get a lot of Ramses in this period as well. The New Kingdom is characterized with foreign conquest and lots of infrastructure developments. So, the growing of Egypt. There's also much we know about their religious and funerary rituals, thanks to decorated tombs, papyri, which was their version of paper, and what we found in these tombs. The 18th dynasty contributed lots more to the temple landscape of Egypt by expanding Karnak Temple and building Luxor Temple. And no, not Luxor like in Las Vegas. Instead of pyramids, though, the pharaohs and queens had themselves buried in what we now call the Valley of the Kings and the Valley of the Queens, which you can visit today. The 19th dynasty continued these building efforts, and Ramses II built the Ramesseum, which is a very impressive mortuary temple. The last dynasty to use the Valley of the Kings as a cemetery was the 20th dynasty. So we're getting closer to our 31 goal. Before I move on, I want to say a quick word about a few of these very famous pharaohs, starting with Hatshepsut. When her husband, Thutmose II, died, her stepson, Thutmose III, was too young to take rulership, so she declared herself regent. Eventually, she declared herself pharaoh and built her own mortuary temple at Deir el-Bahari, which you can also visit today. When Hatshepsut died, Thutmose III resumed the throne. After her death in later years, there may have been an attempt to carve Hatshepsut out of the historical record, with chiseling out her cartouches to erase her name and also some of her imagery. It is interesting, as Hatshepsut was reported to dress masculine, though was always given feminine pronouns in texts. It could be that she did this to take on the guise of what a quote-unquote normal pharaoh would look like, because at this time, of course, only the men could be rulers. Or maybe she had another um, goal in mind, I don't know. A real quick word on Amenhotep IV, who is um, going to eventually rename himself Akhenaten. Akhenaten, or the father of Tutankhamun, um, actually tried to start his own, um, some would say, monotheistic religion, which just means belief in one god, belief in the sun god god, I guess, Aten, often um, depicted as a solar disk. He even built temples and moved his capital around, and not many people particularly liked this change. 
he was trying to really get the worship of the Aten to catch on. But again, there's not much to say whether he forced this monotheistic new religion onto his people or if he just kind of let it exist coinciding with the regular normal polytheistic religion of ancient Egypt. There's a lot of debate about this, but it's interesting um, nonetheless. So guess what came after the new kingdom? If you guessed the third intermediate period, you'd be correct. This period, which lasted from 1069 to 664 BCE, is sometimes referred to as the Libyan period because of an eventual dynasty of Libyan rulers. The end of the new kingdom heralded a collapse of the Egyptian empire, and so this intermediate period was, again, kind of fragmented. This period also saw a lot more foreign invaders, including the Assyrians, whom we met in the previous episode. This period is generally known for its political instability, economic issues, and internal strife that led to this fractured state, with rulers in the north and different rulers in the south. The Libyan rulers, however, consolidated their power and further acclimated to Egyptian society because, of course, they're coming from Libya, so their culture is going to be different. Now we see Egypt um, kind of growing more cosmopolitan. It started getting that way in the New Kingdom because of a decent foreign population, and um, so we see a lot of diversity here, which is kind of interesting to think that there were, you know, immigrants from other lands in ancient Egypt. The Kushites gained hegemony in Egypt for a time, after the Libyans, until the Assyrians made their appearance. The Kushites were most likely connected to Nubia, an ancient civilization in and of itself, um, kind of south of Egypt, in more like Sudan, um, maybe Ethiopia. Um, but they were never really considered Egyptian until they established their own dynasty of pharaohs. After the Kushites, the Assyrian Empire set up vassal rule in Egypt until the Sayite period of pharaohs, which marked the last native Egyptian line of kings before the Achaemenid Empire, or as we call it, the Persian Empire, conquered Egypt. So basically, the Assyrian Empire came in conquered, and set up somebody to rule in Egypt, basically in place of the Assyrian emperor. And, um, but they were still connected to the Assyrian empire, so they would have to pay tribute and all of that good stuff. So the Assyrian empire was basically in charge until the Persian empire came in and conquered Egypt. So this... Achmanid Empire, the Persian Empire, often called the First Persian Empire, conquered Egypt and ushered in what we call the Late Period, which lasted from 525 to 332 BCE. The cool thing about the Persian Empire, though, which will be an episode itself, 
was that they were generally accepting of the cultures and religions they conquered. As long as you paid them money, of course. So, Cambyses, the conqueror of Egypt, set up Egyptians, native Egyptians, in positions of power in the government. So that people, you know, would kind of trust him. And he also actually had a deep reverence and respect for the Egyptian religion. He didn't necessarily practice it. Practice it, yes. But he he still respected it and didn't try to change it. After Cambyses died, there was an attempted revolt, which the Persian emperor Darius, or Darius, depending on who you're talking to, um, came about, and he continued much of what Cambyses had started. So he was very tolerant of the Egyptian religion and the Egyptian way of life. But not all Persian rulers were so kind. For example, Xerxes did not have the same respect for the Egyptian religion as his predecessors had had. So people didn't like that very much. All of this is to say that the Persian occupation of Egypt was not as horrible as you might think, as much of the Egyptian way of life was actually still permitted to continue. And this was true for a lot of parts in the Persian Empire, but again, there's going to be a whole episode for that. So from 404 to 343 BCE, the Egyptians enjoyed brief, brief periods of independence from Persian rule before... Dun, dun, dun! In 332 BCE, Alexander the Great, in his efforts to conquer the Persian Empire and the world, added Egypt to his own growing Macedonian Empire. Following the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BCE, his generals fought over how they would divide his empire. Because Alexander had no heirs to inherit his throne, his closest advisors squabbled over territory until eventually they settled on territorial boundaries, some bigger than others. Alexander's general Seleucus received the probably biggest territory, um, mostly what made up the once great Persian Empire, which was basically the Middle East all the way over to India. His general Antigonus received Macedonia, which was kind of northern Greece. And finally, Egypt and other lands went to the general Ptolemy, after whom the Greek period in Egypt is named. So we are in the Ptolemaic period of Egypt. Thus began a dynasty in itself of basically Greek rulers intermarried with Egyptians, eventually ending with Cleopatra VII in 30 BCE. And yes, this is the Cleopatra of Antony and Cleopatra, Julius Caesar's Cleopatra, Asp, biding her and dying Cleopatra. They were probably the longest ruling dynasty in Egyptian history and took on many of the characteristics of their more ancient counterparts. So they took up their religion and culture and way of dressing, and in some cases, the marrying of brother to sister. As an old professor of mine 
an undergraduate once said, the Ptolemies made the Habsburgs look healthy. And trust me, the Habsburgs were also severely intermarried to each other. So to make a long story short, too late, we come to the end of the ancient era with Roman rule over Egypt, lasting from 30 BCE to 395 CE. Octavian, Julius Caesar's heir and later known as Augustus, defeated Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium and annexed Egypt to what would become the Roman Empire. It was the breadbasket of all the provinces of the empire and remained so pretty much until the empire's collapse. So I just flew through about 3,000 years of Egyptian history and barely scratched the surface as far as events, culture, politics, economics, and so on. But as always, you know I love to give you a bit of context before we jump right into the magic. So due to the life-giving gifts of the Nile, Egyptian civilization managed to flourish, despite the ups and downs of its history. A long line of kings ruled over a fairly solid governmental system, and the culture of Egypt was unparalleled for the area. It is probably the most recognizable ancient civilization, or at least the most recognizable river valley civilization, and its influence is seen even today with architecture and art and more. And yes, I mean more than the interior decorations of Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna take a quick sip here. I do really stand by what I said last episode. This Founders Breakfast Stout is actually really good. Although I don't think I would ever actually have it for breakfast. Heck of a way to start your day. Anyway, let's get into the good stuff here. Magic, to the Egyptians, was very much closely connected to their religion. It was not considered a sacrilege to practice magic, nor was it really seen as an evil thing. As much of the ancient world, the Egyptians were polytheistic, Again, meaning they believed in multiple gods. There's a lot of variation over the course of Egypt's long history um, in their mythology. Um, a lot of stories change, um, details change, but mostly um, the core deities remained constant. You know, other deities were added, but mostly the core ones stick around. As you may already know, some of the deities were also depicted as being part animal and part human. For example, Anubis, a jackal-headed human hybrid, is the god of cemeteries and embalming. He is often present at your death and kind of walks you through to the final judgment, which I'll get to, which I'll get to here in a second. Another example is Sekhmet. She has the body of a human woman and the head of a lioness. She's kind of an interesting goddess. Because she's kind of got two extremes. She's sometimes seen as this goddess of destruction, but she's also associated with healing. A lot can be said about Egyptian religion, 
because we have a wealth of knowledge thanks to tombs, preserved papyri, and other material objects left behind. It can be argued that religion permeated every aspect of society, from general society all the way on up to government administration. Because like I said before, the pharaoh himself was seen as a god on earth. He was responsible for certain religious ceremonies, and of course, as a god, he has the divine right to rule, obviously. We often call this a theocracy. Um, the kingship itself, as an office, I guess um, you could say, was connected to the chief god Osiris, as well as his son Horus. What we know and can speculate about Egyptian religion could and has filled volumes and volumes of academic studies. And since I can't go over every little detail with you, you'll get a little taste as we talk about magic and just how interwoven it was with religion. The Egyptians had many versions of a creation myth. Creation myths are stories that explain how the world came to be, how humans were formed, along with animals and the natural forces of the world. One of these myths involves the world emerging from primeval waters. Another describes the god Atum, basically practicing a little bit of self-love, if you know what I'm saying. And his results were Shu, god of the air, and Tefnut, goddess of moisture who then gave rise to the rest of the world. Other virgins, virgins, <laughs> other versions say, oh, Freudian slip there. Other versions say Atom sneezed Shu and Tefnut into existence or spat them out. Regardless, the world ultimately came from Atom himself rather than primeval water or chaos. Other versions of creation myths involve cosmic eggs and a craftsman god who formed the earth and everything in it out of natural materials. Speaking of natural, nature was a huge aspect of Egyptian religion. Nature was in all things, especially the Nile River itself and the importance of water in everyday life. They are, after all, mostly surrounded by desert. The Egyptians were very in tune with the world around them. They believed that there was this constant fight between order and chaos. And to keep order was mostly the job of the pharaoh as a living god. I had mentioned that before, um, earlier on. Many of their holy festivals and holidays occurred at certain times during the year based on the Nile and their farming cycle. Kind of like um, if you know about more modern um, magic practitioners with the wheel of the year being based on harvesting harvest cycles and stuff like that. So it's kind of kind of similar. As I talked about before, temples were a huge part of the Egyptian landscape. These temples might be dedicated to one god, or if it's a larger temple complex like at Karnak, there would be sev uh, several smaller temples or shrines 
for a bunch of different deities. At these temples, there were priests to tend to the god day and night. So, much like with Mesopotamia, the priests daily fed and clothed the god in elaborate ceremonies. The god was represented by, you guessed it, a statue. Unfortunately, none of the statues used in temples have ever been recovered. Yet, I like to say. Regardless, we have a basic idea of how things went based on temple drawings and paintings. Firstly, the statues themselves were described as being made from wood and other precious metals and stones, like gold, silver, lapis lazuli, and amethyst. Of course, the god had to be fancy and look and fly. With his bling, I guess. Egyptians believed the ba, that's B-A, ba, of a god, or its essence, so ba is the essence of a god, would actually come down from wherever the god lived and inhabit the statue. Once the ba was inside its receptacle, people could pray or petition the god. Every day, at least three times a day, priests would make their way to the sanctuary of the temple, called the Holy of Holies, so basically it's the bedroom of the god. Inside the sanctuary was a shrine, kind of like a cabinet, that held the statue during times the god was unavailable. Priests would recite some incantations before even entering the sanctuary, just, you know, for permission and being worthy and all that. Then they would light some candles and burn some incense. A single priest then broke the seals on the doors to the sanctuary because they had to lock up the god in case something foul happened to it. And they would then enter chanting some more. They would awaken the god by opening the doors to the shrine and prostrating themselves on the ground before the statue. There's some more chanting. Then they remove the statue from the shrine. Then they began the purification process. So basically they gave the statue a bath. And once finished, they dressed the god for the day, including jewelry. And they even put eye makeup on the statue. So after that, it was then time for the god to get his mange on. And they brought food and drink for the god to nourish himself or herself. And when the priests believed the god to be done, your guess is as good as mine as how they would know that, they would put him back into the shrine and repeat the process around midday and at night. On occasion, though, they might actually bring the statue into public spaces or bring the statue out for public festivals for worshippers to come up to the statue and make petitions in their favor. Again, I say it's good to be a statue of a god, apparently, in the ancient world. It's also interesting to note that this ritual that I just described, and actually many others, was actually really the job of the king 
but considering the king can't be in several places at once, the priests are his proxy and they do these in his stead. Okay, so magic, right? That's kind of what you're here for. There are several deities associated with magic in Egypt. One is Heka. H-E-K-A, Heka. Heka is both a personification of a god and a concept. Heka, as a personification, is a god of magic, giving power to those that practice it. It is possible that Heka could be seen as a creator god because magic is said to have existed before even the existence of the gods. There's not much material evidence discovered for proof of widespread worship of Heka in Egypt, however, so Heka is mostly seen as a concept. So Heka as a concept is that of the force of magic itself. It is the knowledge of words and actions that can have a profound effect on the world, altering it in some way, shape, or form. There are records of Heka, the concept, and Heka the god, dating from the Old Kingdom, so very early on, all the way up to the Ptolemaic period and the Roman period and beyond. So magic is a millennia-old concept in ancient Egypt. Another deity associated with magic is Isis. She is one of the major goddesses worshipped in ancient Egypt from the Old Kingdom up into the Roman period. She is said to have been a very powerful magic user herself, as evidenced by the story of her brother-husband, Osiris. So basically the very, very short version of the story is Seth, or Set, also their brother, murdered Osiris and dismembered his body scattering the various pieces all around Egypt. Isis, in her grief, found almost every single piece of her husband except one part, which she made herself, then used her magic to breathe life back into him. At least enough life for her to bear their child, Horus, the falcon-headed god. Remember when I said about the goddess Sekhmet? She is also associated with magic with regards to magical healing. Many physicians in ancient Egypt were also priests of Sekhmet. So who are the humans associated with magic? There are many titles that can be used to identify magical practitioners. None of them really truly translate from ancient Egyptian to magician, though. There's Hem, Necher, Sekhmet which is basically Priest of Sekhmet. There is Kerep Serket, which is Scorpion Charmer, because Serket was a scorpion goddess. Hem Necher Heka means Priest of Heka, and Sau, S-A-U, means Amulet Maker. In the literature, Egyptologists believe there was a major connection between magic, knowledge, and literacy. A lot of magic spells were written down, and therefore someone hoping to harness power from a spell should probably know how to read. Plus, having the knowledge of something affords you power over that thing. Hence, knowledge is power. 
Though there was not a widespread cult of worship for Hekka, there is clear evidence of priests to Hekka, so either the god or the concept, definitely had a presence somewhere in Egypt. Probably everywhere. Despite the fact most known magicians were most likely illiterate, this did not mean there wasn't magic practice by non-elite. There is both textual evidence from Egypt as well as material evidence to support that you didn't actually necessarily need to read to be able to cast a spell. The form that this most likely took amongst the everyday person were amulets and votive statues and other things of that ilk that have been found everywhere in Egypt, and sometimes in bulk. <laughs> Amulets were usually something people wore on cording around their neck, and oftentimes it had a magical inscription pertaining to the wearer's intention. A popular amulet to wear is the wedget, or the wedget, that looks like an eye. The wedget was worn for protection, both while living and actually in death. Some amulets took the form of animals, and others were shaped in the form of a deity. For instance, there is an amulet shaped like Isis at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. You can see it online. Someone would choose to wear Isis when asking for her protection, and maybe that person could be a young mother, as Isis is seen as kind of like this great mother figure. Another popular amulet worn is that of the Bess image, B-E-S, Bess, or the depiction of a deity that is short with several animal characteristics. Bess is kind of an interesting, cute little thing. There's also some Bess amulets at the Metropolitan Museum of Art if you would like to look that up online as well. Bess protected the home <laughs> this is funny, with knives and music. A very interesting combination. And he, and he or she particularly looked after women and children. Another object Egyptians used for magical pur purposes was that of a votive offering or a votive statue. Basically, a votive is something mini, like a mini version of a human or animal, sometimes even a deity made out of clay or some sort of natural material like that. Votives are very much in that realm of sympathetic magic, which we've talked about before. They represented an object or an animal, something that imbued the spell in the process with the intention of the thing trying to be invoked. So there were healing statues, protection statues, and so on. These figurines were often used um, in special holiday rituals throughout the year by the elite and the non-elite. Votives became so widespread, so much so that there was actually molds that were made that could be used to mass-produce votives. No magician is complete without their magic wand. There is some evidence to suggest in pictorial representations and material objects found throughout Egypt um, and painted in tombs that magicians used wands in the shape of a snake. Wands, like the Harry Potter kind of wand, were most likely used to direct the magic within the magic practitioner 
and kind of amplify it. One such snake wand was discovered in a tomb, I believe near the Ramesseum. And there is some speculation that the tomb was that of a magician. As in Mesopotamia, there were some methods of divination in ancient Egypt, although some of the resources that I read were kind of split on whether it was actually really that important to the Egyptians. Um, but as you might recall, um, divination in general is the process in which you might see a future outcome of an event. In Egypt, there was actually reportedly some oracles that could help you with a question that you might have about whether you should, you know, go to war or whether you should marry your daughter off to the neighboring farmer. The oracle would give you an answer from the gods. So the oracle is generally someone seen um, as being kind of like the go-between between the earthly and the the divine. Mostly oracles were um, serving the god Amun-Ra and would often receive divine messages from him via his statue. Um, a lot of times um, Amun-Ra's statue was taken out of his temple and kind of processed around. And um, if, you know, somebody asked a question, then, you know, supposedly the statue would like, you know, rock, either nodding or shaking its head or something like that. It's something kind of silly like that. It's, it was funny to read. There was also some documentation um, that at certain shrines to the god Bess, as I just talked about, um, that supplicants could swear that Bess spoke to them through his shrine. You know, kind of giving them instructions or giving them an answer to their question. Kind of creepy? Oracles were said to be great resources when trying to settle a civil matter as well. And also sometimes in picking the next king if there was dispute to the line of succession. There is also some evidence of the use of astrology and forecasting what was to come, but definitely not on the same level as the ancient Mesopotamians used astrology. Dreams were also a popular way to receive some sort of divine download. Dreams could be interpreted as signs of the future, as the Egyptians believed that when you were dreaming, you were actually existing in another world. And while in this other world, you could be contacted or see something, you know, kind of far away from you or, you know, a god is talking to you or maybe a dead ancestor or something of that sort. So, spells. There's actually a pretty big collection of texts and tomb inscriptions that archaeologists have been able to find um, over the years that um, are basically magical spells or magical handbooks. And to go along with this, medicine in ancient Egypt involved quite a lot of magic and magical spells. Doctors or physicians, whatever you want to call them, were trained in a place called the House of Life. 
And there they learned proper medical techniques as well as magical healing. They used magic to help with their diagnoses and their treatments. The medical tools they used were imbued with protective and healing powers based on symbols carved into the tools, such as the Ankh. The symbols empowered the tools, giving them extra healing energies to help the ill person. Due to the nature of the environment in Egypt, perhaps the most important spells physicians learned for healing were how to heal snake bites, scorpion stings, and even try to ward off crocodiles. The Egyptians were actually fairly advanced in their medical knowledge. For instance, to Egyptians, an infection was something that actually came into the body from the outside, often depicted as a demon of sorts. This might suggest an early concept of germ theory. In the modern era, you know, we know germs are what cause infection. Not even early modern people had this concept. So for the Egyptians to have it is pretty impressive. Or to have, you know, kind of the origins of the thought. Um, this is interesting, um, something that I found in my research. Uh, Egyptians had a method for attempting to cure blindness using pig's eyes. Interesting. So here's a couple of other examples of how magic was used in medicine. There's a couple different ways you could um, use to heal a burn. The first one is, say the designated words, quote, over the milk of a woman who has given birth to a male child, gum and hairs of a cat to be applied to the burn, end quote. That sounds tasty. The second method is where you are supposed to make a mixture of grass, coriander, fruit, fat, oil, and wax. Then say the designated spell three times as you put that mishmashed solve on a bandage over the burn. They also had some ways to try to heal a scorpion sting. Quote, words to be said over an image of Atum Horus Hecnu, to be drawn on the hand of the sufferer, to be licked off by the man, to be done in the same manner on a piece of fine linen, to be applied to the sufferer's throat. The herb is scorpion's herb, to be ground with beer or wine, to be drunk by the one who suffers from a scorpion sting. End quote. That sounds pretty complicated. <laughs> a way that they would protect themselves from crocodiles would be to, quote, this spell is to be said over a clay egg to be given into the hand of a man at the bow of the boat. If something on the water surfaces, it, meaning the egg, should be thrown upon the water. End quote. So basically, to ward off a crocodile, you throw something at it? Sure, seems legit. <laughs> Not all spells were meant to heal. 
some spells were meant to harm. This took the form mostly um, in a figurine meant to represent the person you would want to curse. So if you wanted to put a curse on someone, you made a figurine that looked like that person. So it was a lot like a poppet or a voodoo doll. Archaeologists have found a few of these, actually, and discovered them maimed somehow, whether they were burned or there were, like, you know, cuts in them. Either way, someone somewhere wanted someone else to suffer. It is said that palace officials were actually caught in a plot to do just this kind of malevolent magic against the pharaoh Ramses III. I'm assuming he's okay because he he lived for a bit. So magic in ancient Egypt could be both good and evil, white and black, if you will. The ancient Egyptians also um, had the concept of the evil eye, much like in Mesopotamia. Someone can wear an amulet to protect themselves against the evil eye, such as the wajet. What evidence is present for curses in Egypt is, it's rare, but it's there. But what does exist too are wax figurines meant to represent the person being maimed or killed. So basically like what happened with um, Ramses. In a tomb in the Ramseum, so the mortuary temple built by Ramses, archaeologists found a magician's box, is what they call it, which held a variety of tools and texts used by that magician. Some of the items found in this tomb and box included 23 hymnal papyri that included exorcisms, which implies that they also had the idea of demons, again, like Mesopotamia. These papyri also included funerary rites and spells to promote fertility and cure a variety of illnesses. There was also writing materials, dolls, divine slash serpent figures, human hair, amulets, and beads. So basically all the things that you need to make a spell happen. Despite Isis's use of magic, we actually have more evidence of men practicing magic. However, there is some evidence of a quote-unquote wise woman living in the area of Deir el-Medina. The residents apparently would go to the wise woman if they believed they were sick or under some sort of supernatural attack by a vengeful god or another human cursing them. The woman was said to be able to figure out which god may have been, you know, insulted and hence why they're attacking that person. And therefore, you know, like I said, causing the spiritual attacks and how to appease that god in order to stop the bad luck they were having. So basically I picture this woman as the version of the old lady that lives in the woods. The Egyptians are perhaps most well known for their burials of their dead. Their traditions, in my opinion, are inherently magical, starting with the mummification process. And I know we all want to hear about this. 
So after a person died in ancient Egypt, and of course, if you can afford it, the body would be prepared for mummification, which was usually done by professionals. Like, you know, today you call up the funeral home. Yeah, for the ancient Egyptians, you rang up the professional embalmers, who were actually also priests. The body is first taken to a place called the Ibu, or the Tent of Purification, where the body is washed. Next, the body is taken to the Wabet, or Pure Place, which was kind of like the morgue. So it sat there until the um, embalmers got to the good part. Working in teams, the embalmers would then begin gathering the linens that would be used to wrap the dead later on in the process. There are also rituals of anointing and things like that that were carried out along with prayers and incantations that needed to be recited. Generally, the entire process took between 40 to 70 days, which, wow, is a very long time. <laughs> okay, so now that the body's been washed, what's next, do you want to know? According to the Greek historian Herodotus, who wrote accounts about the process, the embalmers would make an incision, usually in the left side of the body, to remove major organs. These major organs often included the lungs, liver, and so on. They would, of course, remove the brain with a special instrument inserted up through the nose, and they would yank it out. The one organ they did leave was the heart, because in the afterlife, they would be judged based on the weight of their heart. I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. They left the heart and believed that the heart was weighed because the heart was seen as the center of their soul, their essence. So once the organs are out, they would then be placed in separate containers called canopic jars, which would then be buried with the deceased, because you might need them in the, in the afterlife, I guess. The next step, cover the body in natron, which is basically... Cover the body in a whole bunch of salt to pull out all the moisture. Once the body was completely dried out, like raisin or a prune, they began then wrapping the body in linen. And apparently linen was very expensive. So the more linen a mummy had, the richer they probably were in life. As they were doing this, the embalmer priests would also be, you know, giving incantations and stuff like that. And they would stick amulets inside the wrappings to keep the dead safe in their journey through the underworld. The funeral was definitely a religious ceremony where priests would enact the rituals for ushering the dead into the afterlife. They would also put grave goods and other tomb offerings in with the body, which they put into a sarcophagus. Tomb offerings were normal for the deceased to have in order to live on in the afterlife. This was pretty much seen across all historical periods of Egypt, to some degree. 
How would you like to be sent off into death with all your worldly possessions? I know I would want that. <laughs> In addition to physical offerings, someone would also read a list of offerings to the deceased, kind of like invoking them, conjuring them into reality. They also used these things called shaptis, which were um, supposed to represent, um, they were little figurines um, of people, generally servants, that would represent work being done for the deceased in the afterlife so they don't have to do the manual hard labor. As I mentioned earlier, the wedget eye is often placed with the deceased body as protection and good fortune in the afterlife. Of course, spells were used in the mummification process, and they were helped to maintain and preserve the body for the ka or their spirit to have a vessel to inhabit, ka being ka. To go along with the mummification process, there is a ton of other funerary literature that will accompany the deceased into the tomb and the afterlife. These pieces of literature are meant to help the dead person navigate the hazards of the underworld so that they may rest easy in eternity when they reach their destination. These texts include the pyramid and coffin texts. Um, they call these because the pyramid texts are words written on the walls of pyramids and coffin texts are words written literally on coffins of dead people. And this other thing, which went with the dead person, and it was a basically a book, which they called the Book of Going Forth by Day. This book is better known as the Book of the Dead. And no, the Book of the Dead will not actually resurrect a cursed mummy. <laughs> so, for example... In the coffin texts, so again, writings on the sides of a coffin, there are mentions of evil magic, which the deceased needs to be aware of, and the texts give them guidance on how to escape malevolent, the malevolence of some of the underworld demons or sorcerers after um, the deceased tries to, you know, like, run away. So I guess basically the underworld demons and the sorcerers try to kind of like lure them, lure the deceased. And when the deceased said, no, no way, then they would try to, you know, use magic on them. So the coffin text told you how to get past them. Um, let's see. They also had um, magic bricks, <laughs> which were pretty popular in the New Kingdom period. Um, and these were meant to protect the dead from enemies of um, Osiris. The bricks actually had amulets inside of them. Um, and the bricks were set at the main directional points of the tomb. So north, south, east, and west to ward off any damaging forces that could have entered the burial chamber. And of course, there are numerous other examples of safeguards for the deceased. So, the way I like to think of the Book of the Dead is if you've ever seen Beetlejuice, the 80s version with 
or is it 80s or 90s? One of those. With Winona Ryder and uh, Michael Keaton and Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin. Um, that one. Think of the Book of the Dead as the handbook for the recently deceased. It's supposed to tell you how to navigate your new life amongst the dead. The book will eventually bring you to the end of your afterlife journey where you face judgment for the life you left for the life you led. Anubis guides you up to Osiris, who is the god of the underworld and again the husband of Isis. Osiris is often depicted as being a mummy himself, although you can see his head and he's usually wearing some sort of um elaborate headdress and his skin is often depicted as being green because he's dead but he's also um like a fertility god i don't know so anyway you're led up to osiris who is there to sit and watch your judgment and this is when you take your heart and you weigh it against an ostrich feather and the ostrich feather represents mot the goddess of truth and justice, and also order. If your heart balanced perfectly with the feather, then that meant that you led a good life, and you will be led up to Osiris and past Osiris into the rest of your eternity in the afterlife. If your heart was heavier than the feather, Amit, the devourer, would eat your heart, and you were not permitted into the blessed afterlife, and were therefore a restless spirit. Sometimes, apparently, we have some inscriptions of this, these restless spirits might actually come back to interact with the living, and oftentimes torment them. So naturally, um, there were ways the living could, you know, try to get rid of these restless spirits. And there are ways that the living could interact with their dead loved ones. So they could go to a magician who some magicians claimed they could walk between worlds. Kind of like the shamans that I talked about in, um, in the Origins of Magic. Um, and they claimed that they could walk between the dimensions of the living and the dead. And they claimed that they could descend into the underworld at will. Although, the way that the underworld sounds, I don't know why you would want to do that. But, cool. Good for them. Other ways people could interact with their deceased loved ones included making continued offerings at their tomb or their gravesite, and also writing them letters. Letters to the dead were actually pretty popular. And um, in these letters, oftentimes, the living tried to enlist the help of the dead um, as kind of a go-between between the living and the gods, um, the living people and the gods to, you know, help the living people out. So obviously I could talk about Egypt all the live long day. But alas, I have kept you long enough and must bring this episode to a close. From their daily rituals to the rites of the dead... Egyptians took their magic seriously, whether they were an educated priest or a regular laborer. 
To the Egyptians, the world was full of magic, both good and evil, and they approached the world with wonder and reverence befitting magical and supernatural forces. They turned to their gods for help in making their intentions come true, gave offerings to sweeten the deal, and performed precise rituals to make their will manifest. Magic was in every part of their lives, both while alive and deceased. No doubt Egyptians would look at you a little funny if you tried to separate their religious and magical beliefs. Emily Teeter said it best in her book, Religion and Ritual in Ancient Egypt. Quote, Magic developed as a means of alleviating problems, both large and small, and of coping with an unpredictable and sometimes dangerous world. End quote. And I think that is extremely relatable. Coffee and Conjure podcast was created, written, produced, and edited by me, J.R.L. Esperance. Our theme music is composed by Emily Nafius, and our gorgeous podcast cover art was created by Neve at Neve Does Designing. Please like us on Facebook by searching Coffee and Conjure Podcast, and find us on Instagram and Twitter at Coffee Conjure PD. If you'd be so kind, subscribe, rate, and leave a review to let me know how I'm doing. And finally, don't forget to send in your questions, commentary, and coffee suggestions to coffeeandconjure at gmail.com. Until next time, stay enchanted. <laughs>